The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho from Untangling Addiction led a track called Untangling Addiction, Stronger Through Jesus-Styled Discipleship. Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho, or Dr. D for short, has written for Discipleship.org a great ebook about overcoming addiction through discipleship. As a medical doctor and disciple of Jesus, he brings a unique approach to this topic. You can download this book for free at discipleship.org slash addiction. Now for today's track session. So the talk today is anxiety, the evolution of negative thinking. And in no way do I want you to think, does this guy believe in evolution? Does this guy, it's just a word that we're using for negative thinking. I do believe that God is the creator of everything um, and he does have an incredible master plan. So just a few credentials about myself. I am a medical doctor. Um, I'm board certified uh, with the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. Um, I do focus on addiction medicine as well. Um, but the majority of my practice is in psychiatry, is in working with people who struggle with anxiety, who have depression, who may have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, who may have personality disorders like borderline personality disorder. So the majority of my work is that. I own four practices. Uh, uh, two of them are more clinical with physicians who see patients and nurse practitioners who see patients. Um, we do addiction treatment there. We do medication management there. We do all forms of therapy. And then I own two other practices where we use kind of a paradigm shift in psychiatry, where we use something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, where we use MRI technology to map out your entire brain. We know the areas of the brain that are responsible for depression, anxiety. We know those areas, and we use the energy of the MRI to actually increase chemicals right at the spot so you don't have to take a pill, have it go through your stomach, activate in the liver, give you all kinds of side effects, weight gain, diabetes, decreased libido. It's a paradigm shift in psychiatric care. And if that's something you're interested in looking at, on my website, healthymindmd.com, I have tons of videos there with it. Um, I'm also the founder of UntangleAddiction.com, which will be a website that we're launching in January, which is going to be filled with videos, monthly videos, webinars, podcasts, completely free to the community to bring education and awareness about addiction and also mental health issues like anxiety and depression. If you go to 66866 on your cell phone, type in Untangle, you'll be able to start getting information from there and then be a part of the community in January. HealthyMindMD.com is my professional website. You click on there, that's my, those are my practices, that's everything I do. All the, all the videos I put out there, videos I work a lot with, um, the media, NBC and Fox News, uh, NPR, all of that is all there for you guys to listen to and get information from as well. This is the free ebook, Untangling Addiction, A Guide to Recovery Through Jesus-Style Discipleship. And it, this is a discipleship.org publication. So the purpose of this talk is to bring awareness and understanding of what is anxiety. Can I get a show of hands in this room of people who may struggle with anxiety? Okay. Can I get a show of hands of people in this room that may know of a loved one, somebody in your church, somebody you're trying to help who struggles with anxiety? And now even more importantly, 
Can I get a show of hands of people who may know somebody who struggles with anxiety but uses other resources to self-medicate and dampen that anxiety so that they can just be normal? Okay. If we're going to answer the question, what is anxiety? We have to ask the question, where did it begin? Where does it come from? Why are we like this? Does it begin with the woman who, as a child, brought up in a wealthy family, parents were in the ministry, traveled all over the world with them, but her parents had somebody that came with them that was also in the ministry that worked with them, and they didn't know that she was being raped by that person three to four times a week. Her entire childhood, she was being raped and molested and told as a young girl that if she were to ever tell her parents, God would never forgive her. And then now, as a young woman, she came across alcohol because of all the racing thoughts and the nightmares. When she went to her parents to tell them what had happened, they were in the ministry, guys. They didn't believe her. Do not tell anybody at church. Do not tell anybody that this happened. Did it really happen, or is this something that you're... It destroyed her. She can't leave her home. She struggles with panic attacks all day long. Does it begin with the young boy who just wants to be normal at school, just wants to be accepted, just wants to be able to walk through the halls and have friends like everybody else that he sees, but instead he hides in the corners and he runs from class to class? In fact, in high school, 50% of our teens will never, ever be spoken to about anxiety or depression. And they go on to graduate and go to college, and a third of them will become depressed, and a fourth of them will contemplate suicide. In fact, in ages 10 to 25, suicide is the second leading cause of death in that age group. It's growing. It's huge. And it's out of control, guys. A lot of it has to do with social media, and we're going to talk a lot about that, too. So this problem is growing, and we're seeing it in our college campuses, and these young teens, they go there, and how do they deal with anxiety? How do they get there? How do they kind of fit in in the dorm? And, well, they meet kind of the popular guys in the dorm or the popular people, and they start drinking, and they start just kind of molding in to fit in, and that's where all this kind of begins, this addiction to kind of dampen all this anxiety and depression and negative feelings. Does it begin there? We're seeing this rise in substance abuse in college, which is considered a growing epidemic right behind the opioid epidemic, in fact. 227% increase in daily drinking and daily marijuana smoking in college today. Does it begin with the young girl who was constantly told by her mother, you're fat, you're gross. Why can't you be like your sister? Did you put on those college 15, college 20? Constantly scrolling through social media, looking at images of people posting of themselves. Fantasy, not reality. That she will never, ever compare to those images. And now when she looks in the mirror, all she sees is somebody who's fat, gross, no good. And when she goes to bed at night, dealing with the anxiety of waking up the next day, of getting ready for school. Or does it begin with the young boy, and I showed this image before, who comes across pornography accidentally. 
Nine years of age is actually the age when they accidentally do that. And I'll be giving a talk this afternoon to help parents with children who struggle with pornography or who are concerned that they may come across pornography and how to help them. So if you want to hear that talk, please come. Does it begin with this young boy who slowly, he comes across pornography and as a young man, he's trying to navigate through life and the difficulties of life, but he has found that through images of porn and the dopamine release that comes with that, it suppresses his feelings of anxiety. And this becomes his coping mechanism. And now he's in a marriage and he's trying to have a normal life. And he thought, if I get married, we'll have lots of sex and I won't have to look at porn again. And that's not the case, guys. Because it's not about the sex. It's about the identity that was forged through all those years that he turns to that during stressful times. Sex with another person is about love. It's a spiritual thing. It's not about coping with anxiety. And he's stuck now. The individual who finds, you know, they're at work and they're struggling with anxiety, struggling with meeting quotas, struggling with boardroom meetings, and there's a group that always goes out and they always go have a cigarette and, and they kind of clean together and they come back and they look like they're kind of refreshed, so they, he has a cigarette. And then he has two cigarettes and he feels relaxed and there we go, developing a nicotine addiction to suppress anxiety. And in fact, one cigarette that a person smokes today, knowing everything we know about tobacco, just from one cigarette, 69% of people will develop a full-blown addiction to nicotine. There's, it's not about because it tastes good, guys. There's something going on in the brain. And vaping, right? Hey, vaping, it's the cool thing to do. It gets you off of nicotine. Guys, when teens are vaping, they're not vaping water or steam, guys. They got marijuana in there. It's all over the schools. You won't even smell it. In fact, I was at a private school doing a talk just like this there, and they were telling me that they keep the vape right in their tie. It's a private school. They're wearing ties. They look like great kids. They keep it inside the tie, and so they can just pull it up and vape really quick, and they're smoking weed. And food. The individual who just finds comfort in binging on food in the middle of the night because they can't get to bed. They're overwhelmed with racing thoughts and fears of what's to come, but they've learned that by going to the kitchen in the middle of the night when everybody's asleep and just binging on anything, male or female, that they can suppress those feelings and wake and go to bed. And finally, cutting, guys. Does it begin with the individual who does this to their body? When you see this in real life, in an emergency room setting, it's overwhelming. A beautiful child, a young child who does this to themselves. Why? Why do they cut? Because when they cut deeply, the body releases these endorphins that are called endogenous endorphins that are just like opioids. And it allows them to feel present and normal in the moment. And the anxiety is dampened. It's like taking a shot of whiskey, boom. Whatever I'm feeling, the anxiety, the worry, I don't have to feel anymore. The problem with this, though, is that these kids don't want to kill themselves, but many of them accidentally die from something called parasuicide, which is accidental suicide. All of these things, the behaviors, everything, release chemicals, and we've talked about this before, dopamine surges that actually allow you to suppress these emotions and feelings. Pornography, and I talked about this yesterday, is that the thing about porn is that it releases dopamine for over five hours. 
And when dopamine is released like this over that period of time, it creates new neural networks in the brain called neuroplasticity, okay? And these new neural networks are intertwined with the neural networks you have to survive, like eating food or sleeping, okay? So then now, why does that young boy at nine who looks at porn all these years become stuck? Because it becomes intertwined with survival neural networks that are responsible for survival, and the brain now believes it needs porn, nicotine, food under stress to survive. And the brain becomes hijacked and you are completely stuck. In the United States, we have over 40 million people who struggle with anxiety and depression. That's approximately 20% of the nation's population. When we look at anxiety, we look at three spheres. We look at the biological, the psychological, and the social. Genetically, did this individual's parents struggle with a mental health issue? Did they have bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, anxiety, or depression? And just because a parent has um, bipolar disorder doesn't mean the child is gonna have bipolar, but they may develop anxiety. So from a genetic perspective, we need to look at what does their DNA say? psychologically, and we talked about that. What happened in their development? Was there sexual abuse, physical abuse? Were they brought up in the foster care system? Was mom present? Was dad present? Was there proper mirroring in the home? When the child looked at their mother and, he, and the child smiled, the mother instantly mirrored with a smile created by God because that smile and that relationship gives joy to the parent and that dopamine surge that that parent has creates a reward. So we continue this behavior. It feels good to look at my child when they're smiling and I keep doing it. And that, that child internalizes, this is what it feels like to feel good. And this is what feeling good is with a smile. All of this happens in the brain. But did that child grow up in a house where dad was an alcoholic? And the child was smiling. And dad looks down at the child and says, what are you looking at? Don't smile at me. Was that the mirroring in the home? And that creates an internalization of self-loathing. We, we have been designed to idealize our caregivers. Mom and dad are Superman. They're incredible. And when we're little, we can't direct anger at them when they do these horrible things to us. So the anger has to go somewhere. Instead of being projected to them, it's internalized to us. And it defines our identity. And we continue to live out our lives to redefine our identities. We're no good. We're ugly. What are you looking at? You're gross. And we continue to look for people who will reaffirm our identities. People who will abuse us physically. We'll behave in a way where we'll use drugs and alcohol because we're no good. I'm never going to be anything. And from an unconscious perspective, we live this life and we suffer. Socially, what is your social life today? Where are you spiritually? All of this defines how we're going to deal with anxiety and why we have anxiety. What is our social life today? Who are our friends? Are we involved in our church? Are we involved in a real discipling relationship? Is there transparency between the relationships you have in your in your church? Do people really know that you trust where you come from and what you're dealing with? Or is your social network 
composed of people at church, but another group of people in your life that anything goes, that you can go out, you can have fun, you can drink, you can do drugs, you can have sex, whatever, and you live this double life. Is that your social network? Or socially, what's going on in your life, your finances, your stresses? You go to the mailbox, oh my gosh, the taxes. How am I gonna pay that? How am I gonna pay for this? Socially, are you engaged with your children? Are you involved in their lives? Have you been creating a dialogue since they were young, spiritually, that you can talk about anything, that when they turn 15 years of age, it's not awkward to confront them about a concern you have because you've been doing this all the way through. Socially, what is your life like today? So when we look at all those three spheres, we say to ourselves, if somebody has biologic development and social, most likely they will develop some type of mental illness. But that's not necessarily the case, guys. You could have great DNA, you could have a great social life today, but have a past of significant trauma, which will play itself out through your entire lives. So anxiety, how do we define anxiety? Well, anxiety is essentially this. It is the symptoms of worry or fear of an unknown future, of, an un of a past riddled with pain that gives you excessive worry, irritability, muscle fatigue, insomnia. I can tell you I've experienced anxiety myself and some of the symptoms that I went through, I'd be at the dinner table and my wife was like, hello? Hello, and I'm literally don't even remember her. And all my kids, I have four little boys, one, three, five, and seven, all looking back at me like, well, what's going on with daddy? It blinds you. Different types of anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, which is what we just defined there, phobic disorders, fears of certain things, <laughs> panic disorder, where you can literally be out to dinner with your loved one. Having an incredible time, no stimulus, nothing, and <gasps> I'm having a heart attack. Rush to the ER, cardiac enzymes, troponins, echo, everything, totally normal. Sir, you're having an anxiety attack. It can come like that. Obsessive compulsive disorder, where you have obsessive thoughts about things. They're just overwhelming. You feel like you're dirty. And because the obsessions are so overwhelming, you create a compulsive behavior to dampen the obsession. So if I'm here and I have OCD and I'm giving this talk and I'm having thoughts in my mind, somebody's going to walk through that door and kill us all. And it's just going on and on. And I'm still trying to give this talk. I'll stop the talk and I'll say, guys, let me just lock the door. I'll go lock it once twice, three, four, and five times, because if I do it five times compulsively, I know it's definitely locked, and nobody's going to come in, and it helps me with my obsessive thought. That's real OCD, and it's debilitating. Most people with significant OCD are on disability. They can't even leave their homes. And post-traumatic stress disorder, something we see a lot with our veterans, people who have sacrificed their lives to be in the, the theater of, of, of trauma and combat that they have to go there and raise up to a hypervigilant world where, yes, they've got to worry about if somebody's going to walk in and kill them. They've got to walk into a room and check pockets and see if somebody's packing a firearm. They've got to do all those things. And they do it for three years, and then they come back and they have to be civilians and be normal. How is that? How could they do that? How could they just switch from that to this? They can't. And so they develop significant anxiety to just be normal today. So these are the different types of anxiety. 
So how do we help? How do we help individuals overcome this? Well, we have to look at our primitive ancestors. We have to look at the place we've come from. We've come from a place where we were don't get killed machines. At all times, we were concerned about just survival, about living. If we didn't have the ability to look across and make sure that nothing is coming, nothing is going to kill me, if we didn't have that ability, what would happen? We would die. So our primitive answers, answers had to develop this hypervigilance to be able to do that. But now we've inherited this in our modern day society. We're constantly looking over our shoulder, worried about our boss, the boardroom meeting, what's to come, what is he gonna tell me? Is he gonna be on me today again, bothering me? And we're hyper vigilant. We're worried about our taxes, our finances. And all these things are realities of life, guys. We have to navigate through these things in our lives. But can we navigate through them being like, Hey, he's going to come. He's going to talk to me. We're going to work it out. Or are we going to be like, I just can't deal with this anymore. I, can't, I need to see somebody. I need maybe some time off from work. I can't deal with my taxes. Social media. A young teen who can start out the morning that day. Great. Awesome. Going to school. And they get on their phones, which parents let them do Snapchat and all these different things. And they start to see all these posts. And maybe somebody posted something about them that was negative in nature and they get into this fight or flight response and their heart rate goes up, their blood pressure goes up and they don't have a fully developed frontal lobe that they can rationally look at these images and say, everything's going to be okay. And they can actually spiral in one day and commit suicide. And I've seen it happen in Jacksonville. A young team there, varsity uh, basketball team, going away to college to play basketball. Some events happened during the day. He left home, was doing great according to parents, and at the school ended his life this last year. This is a reality, guys. So we come from a place, guys, where big, big animals with even bigger teeth lurked around every single corner. Is that a wolf coming from the distance? Are they looking at us? Is that a bear coming? Who is that coming to our cave? Are they coming to kind of unite forces with us so that we could be stronger together? Or are they coming to kill my entire family, take everything I have? We were hypervigilant and we were concerned about death. Why did we have this? Why did we have this system? This is probably going to be the most important concept I'm going to give you guys today. I talked about it a little bit yesterday, but we're going to look at it from a different angle today. All of the information that we gather come through some, through some basic senses. We see, we smell, we hear, and we feel. And they all go to one place in the brain, and that's called the thalamus, which is this larger area above the little pink dot there. The thalamus's job is to make a decision and say, am I going to move this information to the front of the brain where I can rationally think and make a really good decision? Or it's going to decide, is there a threat here? Is my life at stake here? Should I get ready to take action? And it's got to make that decision in three hundredths of a second, guys. I mean, that's quicker than this. Three hundredths of a second, bam, it does it. Okay. We call that amygdala hijacking because if it does make the decision to perceive this as a threat, 
you cannot rationally think. There is no rational thing. Have you ever been in a conversation with people where something, you start talking about a tough topic, it starts escalating, and you're trying to calm them, and you're like, they're not getting it, and it's just going? They can't rationally think. The amygdala hijacks that frontal lobe. So now, if there is a perceived threat there, and the amygdala is like, yes, I think this is a perceived threat, the amygdala has to make a decision, but it uses a reference tool. Right? When we make decisions as psychiatrists or just as regular people, we're gonna, okay. we always reference kind of our past, right? We predict future behavior with past behavior. That's a good decision. And the amygdala is that smart. So what does the amygdala do? How does it make the decision? This is a threat. The area that's curled around the thalamus there, you can't, re you can't really see it, but it's called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus has all of our memories, every single thing that has happened to us in our life. If you can go back in your life and you can remember a third grade image, second grade image, some conversation, it's all in that hippocampus. All the great memories, all the fun times, everything, but also all the trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, abandonment issues, all of that is in that hippocampus. So when something comes your way and the amygdala has to make a decision in three hundredths of a seconds, guys, it looks at the hippocampus and it's like, hey, hippo, is this a threat based on my past? Like, should I take action right now? And if it decides to take action, it's a done deal. It fires and it goes down a sequence of events. Adrenaline is released powerfully. It saturates your muscles and adrenaline will get your muscles to move quicker than anything else. Have you heard the stories? Mother in the car with her child. Child is trapped. Mother tears the door off the car. How is that possible? Massive amounts of adrenaline. Superhuman strength. The lungs start to hyperventilate to get you massive oxygen to the brain to take action, to move. The eyes will dilate so you can see completely, we call it stereophonic vision, where you can see all around you, all for survival. Heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up. Let me give you an example of why this worked really well from a primitive perspective. Caveman's walking outside the cave, it's early in the morning. I talked about this yesterday, but we'll do it again. Walks outside, starts walking out the cave. It's early. He's getting ready to have breakfast. And there's a saber-toothed tiger right outside the door waiting for his breakfast. As he's walking out, the saber-toothed tiger starts coming at him. He doesn't even have to look at the saber-toothed tiger for that amygdala to go onto the hippocampus and start to fire. And bam, he jumps back in. His body just takes over. And he survives. All of the memories of that caveman fighting the bear, the saber tooth, all of that is all stored in there. An incredible system created by God for this individual to survive. Okay? And in fact, you don't even have to look at the saber tooth tiger because sound and touch don't even go to the thalamus, guys. It goes right to the amygdala to even work quicker. Have you ever been in your car and you're driving and a song comes on and the song maybe remind you of an old relationship and it went down in flames, you know, your heart was broken, and the song comes on, turn it off! <laughs> Why? Immediately, amygdala is firing. All the pain, all the suffering, everything, sound and smell go right to the amygdala. And we've been designed like that for survival, for this incredible thing. 
But now, let's look in modern day society, guys. You know, it's a Saturday night. You're at home with your family. Normally, you go out with friends from church, and you're involved in doing things, and you go on Facebook, and there's a birthday party going on at church, and you weren't invited, and these are your friends, and you see images of people that you know that should have invited you, and immediately, feelings of hurt and pain, maybe firing onto the hippocampus, maybe you had abandonment issues when you were young, and you're feeling horrible, and that's a reality. That happens. And we start to react. And then the anxiety starts to kick in that may also kind of kick in some depression. And you may take action and fire off a few texts and post something on Facebook, like, I wish I was invited. Or, and then you go back and you're like, rationally, why did I do that? Or the young teen with social media who's scrolling through on a day-to-day, comparing themselves to all these images. And out of nowhere, they see something that fires this amygdala response, and they start to spiral. Heart rate goes up, depression, all these feelings. And that's what can lead to impulsively, not thinking rationally, ending their lives. And in fact, guys, as a psychiatrist, the majority of people that I know that truly attempt to end their lives do it impulsively. It's rare that somebody actually who's planning it, thinking about it, doing all that, when they come to me and I ask them, are you having these thoughts? It's a rescue. They want somebody to help them. But people who end their lives actually really impulsively do it. We look at the death of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade and these celebrities, tons of other people in our communities that actually end their lives. It's more impulsive. And in fact, when you question them after they try to end their lives, if they've survived, How do you feel about surviving? So grateful I didn't die. That's usually the response. It's just a moment in time. So this is how the amygdala works, and this is how we've been designed. The thing is that in caveman days, fight or flight was awesome. It worked. It was great. It was appropriate. But when we bring it into our, prim- into our modern day society, it can have catastrophic results. In primitive times, it was important to remember how I fought the bear, how I fought the lion, and recall that and remember that. How can I do it better? How can I get less injury so that I could provide for my family? It was important to recall all this stuff, but in our modern day society, we reminisce and recall all of our hurts, all of our past, and we sit in suffering. Even if those past hurts and the lessons learned are there and you try to move on, we still recall them. They still plague us at night. All of that, and we continue to go back and back in them. It was important in our primitive society to constantly compare ourselves to other people in our small groups. It was important. Am I fitting in here? Am I providing food? Am I doing everything that this group needs to survive? Because if I don't do that, they're going to leave me, and they will abandon me. And if I'm left alone, I'm going to die. So it was important to compare ourselves, guys. And this is an important concept because we are designed to constantly compare. But in our modern-day society, our groups, our villages, are not made up of 10, 15 people. They are made up of massive groups, millions and millions of people who are constantly scrolling and scrolling and looking at everybody else around us. And we're comparing ourselves to them. We've been designed to do that. And when we look at all these images and all these selfies and all these things and all these teens doing all these things, people, families taking vacations and taking pictures, 
That's not the reality of their family dynamic. That's a moment in time that it looks awesome. Why can't my family take that trip? I wish I made as much money as them. Man, they look awesome. Their family's incredible. They're so much more spiritual than us. Look at their kids. Their kids are doing great. They don't have special needs. And we compare all these things. And when we do that to ourselves, it leaves us empty. It leaves us longing and desiring for more. And we can never compare to that. It was important that we provided food for our families. It was important that we brought water. We brought a lot of stuff to our families as much as we can, weapons and housings. Why? Because it allowed us to have lots of babies, and we can all be here through all the years. But in our modern-day society, guys, it's never enough. We want more and more, and we continue to want more. And what does that leave us with? A sense of greed, a sense of emptiness, that nothing is ever good enough. And in the hustle and bustle of our every single day life, the checklist of everything we have to deal with, the anxiety overwhelms us. When we look at the life of Jesus in Matthew 26, 36, our God, our creator, he was in a moment in time where he knew what was to come. He was gonna be spat on, he was gonna be flogged. He was gonna be separated from his father, taking over all this sin. And our God needed relief. I am feeling sorrow to the point of death, quote unquote, guys. There's no drama there. This is God using very specific words to describe what he is feeling. Has anybody in this room ever felt sorrow or fear or worry where you feel like you're gonna die? Our God went through the same thing. And he was clear about it. My father, if it is possible, he goes to his father. May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He goes to his father, seeking relief, asking for another way. He's God. He wasn't like, let's go. No problem. I'm going to face this. I'm going to do it. We'll deal. It has to be done. There was a moment in time where he himself was at that dinner table, and he was just like, he could not. See clearly, he was so overwhelmed and he asked for relief. Toiling and feeling this emotion as if fused with two pieces of metal where you can't even see the dividing line. All this feeling, all this emotion fused to his body where it's dictating the next decision where he's got to go to his father and ask for relief. People who struggle with real anxiety understand that feeling where they're not looking at their feelings and in kind of navigating through. It's almost as if it's a part of them. You can't even see the dividing line. And you take action. And you want relief. And that's why people do what they do. That's why they look at porn. It's not about the sex. That's why people drink excessively. It's not about, I want to get buzzed. It's not about the gambling online. It's not about the guy who comes home and immerses himself in video games and is totally disconnected from his family because he just wants to escape everything and he loves getting online and doing all these video games around the world with everybody. He doesn't have to insert himself in even more stress when he gets home with his kids. It's not about those things. It's about relief and not having to feel, guys. The degree of fusion dictates that fusion of feeling dictates the degree of suffering. 
The more and more you are fused to these feelings and these emotions, you will suffer more. From a neuroscience perspective, we call it amygdala hardening, where if you continue to do this, your amygdala gets harder and harder and harder, and it's like something comes, that amygdala fires immediately. I mean, it's just an automatic response. You're on the computer, pop up, pornography image, boom, you're automatically there. You're driving home, you see a bar you used to go to, boom, you're automatically gonna drive in. You get in an argument with your wife, and you're trying to be calm, boom, automatically you're gonna bring up the past. You always do this, your amygdala is gonna fire. And the degree of suffering, and the more you allow this to happen, that amygdala hardens. It's difficult to take from these false beliefs, guys. I know that I'm up here and I'm speaking, and it's like, wow, some of these things he's saying really, you know, they, they sound, you know, I mean, like, I can really understand that. But it's hard for this young girl who I know per- personally and worked with, and I'll get a little emotional, but she brought me this photo. It's not her. She found it on the internet, but from you know, her development, her mother telling her how gross she was, how ugly she was, she'll never be like her sister. She brought me this photo and she's like, when I look in the mirror, this is what I see. How am I gonna change my perception of myself and all those years of emotional trauma? How am I gonna do that? It's difficult, it's not easy. In something called acceptance and commitment therapy, which I really feel parallels what we teach spiritually, we say that the majority of life has suffering. The majority of life is hard, guys. From the age of one to the age of 99, however long you live, people believe that as we get older, we're more seasoned. We're tougher, we're resilient. That's not the case, guys. I work with a lot of people. I see a lot of people every day. As we get older, we tend to see life for what it really is. It becomes clear to us that it has tremendous suffering. And as we get older and we have kids and people rely on us and we have failures and we see people we love die, a child may pass away, a loved one may die, you may lose everything. As life continues to go on, you feel more, you experience more, and life is harder. The question is, as the suffering increases, are you going to just jump in and be fused to that and just let it throw you all over the place? Or are you going to learn a way to navigate through the suffering? Because it's not going to go away. The moment you walk out this door, things are going to happen. And instinctively, you're going to react. A text may come. A bank thing may come. You know, all kinds of stuff may happen that are going to get you anxious and worried and fearful. Life is hard. But how are you going to navigate through that? And acceptance and commitment therapy, we teach patients and members of our church to accept our past. I know that's, it's an easy statement to say. But we teach them over time that it is in the past. It, it is, and it's sad that you were abused, and it's sad that your parents weren't there for you, and it's sad that these horrible things happened to you. And we're not taking away from that. But in this moment right now, you are not there. And we have to come to a place where we accept that is, that is the story of your life, and it's never gonna go away. And you can't compare it to other people around you that had an incredible life, because that's just gonna invoke more sadness. 
but this is your past. But today you are here with me and we're taking action. You've come here to take action. We accept an unknown future, guys. The future is completely unknown. Every time we try to play out the future of what's to come, it's amazing how God comes in and it's like, whoa, I would have never guessed that this would have happened. It's amazing how things change, but we accept the fact that the future is unknown. And in fact, when I work with people who struggle with insomnia and sleeping, usually when I talk to them about what's going on, it's kind of this unknown future and this unknown fear and it starts to spiral. Your brain is tired. Your body is tired. You're trying to get sleep. And what's going to happen? Not rational thinking, guys. That amygdala, that hippocampus is going to take over completely and it's going to dictate your thoughts. And that's why people struggle so much with that. And they get up and they're just, they, they want to get to bed. They need to get to bed. They run for the ambient. They run for a shot or whatever. They run to the, the refrigerator and they do whatever it takes to get to bed. So we teach them to accept an unknown future. And then we allow ourselves to feel difficult emotions and feelings. I'm not teaching you something that's going to make you feel good during suffering, guys. Suffering is suffering. It's, it's, it's hard. It's, I'm not trying to change your viewpoint of what is in the present moment to make you feel better but I'm trying to help you step into difficult feelings and emotions. That is the reality of life. That is what Jesus faced at that moment in time. He didn't pray to his father and then feel awesome about it and then let's go. No, he had to still face it. But he had to navigate through what was to come and what, what, he, what he was dealing with. I worked with a gentleman in Syracuse where I did a part of my residency and I had him come in my office, and he had a fear of being dirty. <clears throat> when are we finishing again? I'm sorry. Chad, when are we finishing? 11 o'clock? Okay. And he had a fear of being dirty. And um, he came into my office, and uh, I had this, like, kind of garbage can-looking thing filled with dirt and cigarette butts, and there was, like, this goo in there that looked like spit or something. And so he walks in, and he sees it, and he's like, he didn't even want to walk into the office. And in fact, pulling it in the office, I had to pull it in through the clinic, and some of my coworkers and other doctors in there were like disgusted by the smell of it. So I put it in my office, and he comes in, and we sit down, and I, you know, I'm getting him ready, and I'm like, I want you to put your hand in there. And he was like, Phew. you know, and we worked through a lot of his false beliefs. We worked through a lot of his past beliefs and, and also fear of what was to come when he put his hand in there. I, I told him, like, there's nothing in there that's going to harm him or hurt him, or, but I wanted him to put his hand in there. So he puts his hand in this thing, and he is, like, tremulous and shaky, and he's putting it in there, and he closes his eyes, and he's like, all right, that's not so bad. And I said, stop. I don't want you to learn how to conform and be comfortable with things that are bad. And that's what we tend to do. That boss that's over our shoulder he comes to you, he's negative, he's mean, he's nasty. What do we do? We conform to it. We learn how to fly under the radar and not be detectable and compliment him or, and we feel horrible about it. That's not what I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to teach you how to step into that and navigate through it. I was trying to teach him how to open his eyes and look at it and still let's work through what you're feeling, how horrible this is and, and still navigate through. 
If you go to a therapist or anybody and they try to tell you or teach you some type of form of therapy to make you feel good, that's not good therapy, guys. It will not last. It may last for six months, but life is going to come back. It will never change. The natural progression and the natural order of life created by God is difficulty. That's why we need Jesus. So breaking free from false beliefs, how do we do this? How did Jesus do it that day? We commit to our values. We commit to a value system, guys. What are our values? What do you want to stand for? What really matters to you? How do you want to be remembered by your wife, your children, your friends, your coworkers? We set our minds on things from above, guys. Where do these values lie? Do they, do they lie in the amygdala? Or do, do they lie in the most impulsive area of your brain? They, rely, they lie in your frontal lobe. Rational thinking, guys. Rational. If you, if you guys did not hear the talk yesterday I gave um, on addiction, we, this is all being recorded. I go a little bit deeper in the neuroscience of what the, the frontal lobe is responsible for, but it's responsible for right and wrong. It's responsible for why you are all here today, why you've decided to be here, why you've decided to be Christians. Becoming a Christian is not an amygdala response. Okay, becoming a Christian is a thought out, you study the scriptures, you can count the costs, and you can make this decision to leave that old life. That is frontal lobe, right and wrong, taking action. What do you want to stand for? When Jesus was in the garden, his amygdala was like firing the fear of what was to come. But his value-based system of what needed to be done after time was able to take over. What are your values? If me here in front of you right now, can you honestly write down one or two values really that are so clear to you that you've prayed through, that people in your life know about, that in your discipling relationships they know, like this is what he stands for. This is who he wants to be. Do you have a set of values? Why is AA celebrate recovery? Why are those groups, those self-help groups in addiction so, why do they do so well? Because they give you a set of steps. And those steps are values. They're value-based. I remember I had my wife. She's not in sobriety. Um, but I send a lot of people to AA and Celebrate Recovery. And I go to these groups. I'm not in recovery. But since I send people there, I go to them as well. And I had her read. The, it's called the big book, the blue book in AA. And she read the, the 12 steps. And she was like, this is incredible. If everybody lived through these steps... I mean, this, I mean, it'd be incredible. You'd have an incredible life. Absolutely. And every one of those steps is spiritually based. It's all over the scriptures. So why does AA do that? They give you the steps. They want you to have a set of values. Why? Because when you are faced with the temptation of needing relief to turn to drugs or alcohol, you have these values in place that you can turn to in real time that will guide you from here being fused to this is who I want to be. It's our values, guys. Paul was amazing. And I said this yesterday. You know, I've, I've been asked this before. If, if you can go back in a moment in time and, and it, you could pick any time in the life of Jesus, what would you go back to? Would you go back to the crucifixion? Would you go back to the resurrection? I always say the same thing. I'm like, I just want to be around Paul to know what the thorn in his side was. I just want to know what it was. 
Because he got it, guys. He understood the concept of neuroplasticity. He understood that if we are conforming to the patterns of this world, we're like just zombies. We're just following what everybody does. But we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He believed and he understood that only through the power of Jesus that you can make the decision to change that frontal lobe and create new neuroplastic changes in the frontal lobe that are healthy. He understood that and he got it. Obviously, he wasn't a neuroscientist. He was a brilliant man. But he used this in his own life in real time in order to guide him. And he knew that it was because of the power of Jesus, because of this thorn in his side, that he can basically say, I'm a slave to sin. The things, you know, I don't want to do, I do because I'm a slave to sin. But I want Jesus. I want righteousness. And that's really what I want to do rationally. So values are truths, guys. They guide you in real time. They motivate you in real time. They inspire behavioral change in real time. All of this I'm talking to you about, we're sitting here, we're listening to it, but this is all about real time, guys. The moment you walk out that door, bam, that's real time. It's hard to be like, what did Dr. D say? How are you gonna do it in the moment, real time, present? How are you going to be able to deal with the past and the future and all in real time? That's what we're talking about. If this is going to be of any use to you, if I'm going to be of any use to you, I've got to be able to teach you how to do this in the moment. They're truths, they're not emotions, and they are real. Values are real. Remember, fusion to feeling and feelings are not reality. Your feelings may have value because of your past. Those same feelings on another person may have no value at all. You've linked words and feelings to these emotions from your past. We call that a construct. In the next talk I'm doing on parenting, I'm going to define that more for you. Values are truths. They are real. They are spiritual principles. So where do you find the values, guys? Where do you find them? You find them all over the scriptures. This is me with my son, Rafa. He's eight now. He was one there. And this is what we do in the morning. We wake up in the morning. We, we go through our scriptures. We do it together. Obviously, I only had one son there. I have four sons now. And we do it in the morning. They can tell you that daddy's favorite verses in, in the life of David and how I feel I relate to that and those values that David had, wanting to overcome sin, how I incorporate them in my life. My son Rafa can tell you them. Can your kids tell you that? Do they know that about you? Why do I do this with them? Because when they're 15, 16, I'm not going to be like, let me pull this out now for the first time. And it's so foreign and so weird and awkward to them. It's got to happen. It's got to be a dialogue that's been built over time. So my kids know my values. In your relationships, is the DNA of your relationships based on values? Do people know your values and what you stand for? Everyone knew who Jesus' disciples were, how they loved each other, by how they loved each other. Are your relationships rooted in that? So guys, how do we do this in real time? Well, there's a very popular topic out there today called mindfulness, right? 2 Corinthians 10.5, take captive of every thought and make it obedient to Christ. 
Okay, when I was in my psychiatric training, I remember we were talking about mindfulness and, and all these concepts, and they asked me, we were in a big, we would, all the residents would get together, and they're like, what do you think of mindfulness? I'm like, in all honesty, guys, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but I was in the ministry before medicine, and I led a church in, in Florida, um, and um, so I have a lot of training, uh, scriptural training and, you know, application of it, and when I went to residency, I was like, it's 2 Corinthians 10.5, and they were like... Oh, gosh. And I'm like, it's taking captive of every thought, you know, making room for it, you know, not being fused to it, but defusing, allowing for yourself to step into your feelings and emotions and making it obedient to Christ. Some translations say crucifying it. Mindfulness is that. There's nothing new here, guys. And that's the beauty of the Bible is that it's all in there. How do we do this? How do we take captive every thought? So what is mindfulness? Is it this dog that just in real time, he walks out that door and he's faced with stress and he's, he just gets in that pose and he can't connect with anybody out there? It's not mindfulness, guys. It's not mindfulness. Mindfulness is an awareness process. It's not a thinking process. It's being present in the moment. Even if the experience is painful and difficult, I'm feeling sorrow to the point of death in that moment. It's allowing for yourself to be present in it. Even if you're like feeling it and dealing with it and you're in conversation and you're like having to navigate through these halls and your work, mindfulness is that I got to run to the bathroom and do some technique or get out. It's not that. It's learning how to be present in the moment, even if you're feeling it. Mindful or mindful? Look at that dog on the right there. Just looking at everything for what it is and looking at that human on the left, all the worries, all the fears, all that. So what are we trying to accomplish here, guys? We're trying to encourage you to step into your life even when facing sorrow and suffering while focusing on your values which come from a deep relationship with Jesus. Let me give you a basic technique in mindfulness. And the more you do this, it's instinctive in real time, you can do it. When I was in my, uh, psych, uh, re my residency in Syracuse, my first year of medicine, I'm a medical doctor, was all trauma, ER, internal medicine, and neuro ICU. I did my psychiatry later, but I still had to get training in regular medicine. And it's a very stressful year. It's very, very difficult, and there's a lot of anxiety. I happened to have a supervising doctor that was very punitive. And his, his, the way he was trained was that if I just break this guy down, I can build him back up. And he did it in a very punitive way. So every day I'd go to work and I was just like, it's going to come, you know. Um, and so I would be in the halls and he would see me with all these medical students and all these other residents. And Dr. DiCarvalo, can you come here? And I would walk down the hall. Can you present this case to us? We're right in front of the room. And, you know, he's just ticking away at everything. What are the labs? What are this? What are that? You know, and then he would go into my basic sciences and try to just kind of find a place where I look like I don't know what I'm talking about. And that's really, really hard to do. It actually allowed me to be able to stand and present and be confident and really master the material, which I think physicians need to do, but it was a very difficult time and a lot of suffering for me. So I went to one of my future supervisors that was going to work with me in psychiatry, and I said, hey, you know, we're going to start working together, but I really need some help. I need help to be able to go to work and feel good about what I'm doing and, and deal with this supervising doctor. And that's where he introduced me to acceptance and commitment therapy and mindfulness. And what he taught me was this basic technique. 
He said, when you're feeling a feeling of fear as you're walking to the hospital, just take a second and say, I notice I'm having a feeling of fear. I notice that it's in my chest. It's circular. It's heavy. It's round. It's black. I can actually look underneath it. I can put it above me. I can turn it. It's like an iceberg. And he allowed me and taught me how to describe feeling. As you're doing that, that's called diffusion. You're no longer fused anymore. So I took it a step farther, and I would walk to work, and I would say, Father, I notice I'm having a feeling of fear as I'm walking to the hospital. I notice that this feeling is round. It's hard. Father, I, you know, I notice that I'm, I'm feeling that um, I'm going to be spoken down to or, or embarrassed today. But Father, I know that my values and what we've been studying out in the scriptures say that I'm going to overcome this, that I know that you have a bigger plan for me, that I know that you are sovereign, and I know that you are going to use this information for me to help other people. That's real time. So as you're walking to work, I was doing this all the time. I wasn't sitting there doing this and this. I would just be having my prayer walk, going to work, getting ready. And as I would get into the hospital and I would see him coming, I would still just in my mind just pray a little bit and I'd walk right into it and I'd step into my values and I knew that what I was going to face had a huge meaning in the future. That is acceptance and commitment therapy. And that is what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane that day. Remember Jesus, guys. Fusion. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Quote, unquote. Avoidance, guys. He tried to avoid it. That's a form of control. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. But acceptance and mindfulness. My father... If it is not possible, look at the difference in the words. If it is possible versus if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done after prayer. What was he doing? He was praying. He was focusing on what had to be done. He was getting ready for the moment. In real time, he was feeling fusion going from a diffused state to a diffused state based on his values. Commitment to his values, guys. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. When Judas showed up that day, did he say, rise, grab your swords. Rise, let's run, let's go, or let's fight them. No, he said, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He stepped into his life. That's the difference, guys. We all want relief, but how are we going to learn to navigate through our lives. It's important to know that Jesus was a man. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. I am feeling sorrow to the point of death, guys. It's important that this scripture, that you know it well, because when we look at the life of Jesus as an example, it's easy to be like he was God. Mindfulness. To encourage and to close out, I think I shared this with some of you guys again yesterday, but for those of you who weren't here, you know, when I do these talks, I often take a lot of photos of my son, my sons, these are my two older boys, Rafa and Paolo. 
And when I came, I asked them, I said, look, I'm going to be doing this talk on mindfulness, and I want to take a picture of you guys, you know, doing some poses. And so um, they immediately went out in our backyard, and they got into these poses. They knew these, like, meditative-style poses. And I was like, what? He's in first grade, and he's in uh, pre-K. And uh, Rafa and Paolo. And I look back at my wife, and I say, how do they know how to do these poses? And my wife says to me, she's laughing, kind of like, I'm so disconnected from what's going on. She's like, they do this like three times a week at school. And I'm like, what? (sighs) Guys, I'll get emotional. Anxiety and addiction is not just about the examples I gave you of the woman who was raped her entire life as a missionary of the family that lost their child. It's not just about those people, but it's about our children, guys. Rafa, without a doubt, one day somebody's gonna come to him and offer him drugs. One day he's gonna be on that computer and he's gonna start to see images that are weird and he's gonna be pulled toward them. He's gonna have anxiety. He's gonna have stress in his life. And as he's pulled towards those feelings, guys, of wanting to seek relief, my goal as a discipler is these are the greatest disciples I will ever make. And my goal is that when they're choosing this or forced to choose this, they choose in real time their values and they choose Jesus, guys. Questions? Yes, sir. This, are you divorced from your wife? Yeah, okay. my ex-wife. Your ex-wife. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, uh, the question was that he has two daughters, correct? And he's divorced, and um, his children are allowed to utilize their phones for social media um, and, and kind of have their way with the phone. He's against that, um, and how is it that he can help uh, the situation? Um, in, in all honesty, I, you know, my, my feeling is that even though you are divorced with this lady, you, you still are, these are your children, and you still need to lead her in regards to your children. And so there are several talks that need to happen. You need to get with her. You need to have the awkward conversations and you need to be, and you need to continue and you need to continue and you need to be vigilant about it because these are your children. And as as awkward as it is, as hard as it is, you just continue to do it. You continue to talk to your children. When they're with you, they cannot do that. They may not like you. They may want to be with their mom more. They may use all those things uh, to hurt you or make you feel like that or make you change your decision about it. But you continue to be firm on the fact that you don't want that. Social media, I mean, it's an incredible tool. It can be used for so many things. But in the hands of a child who does not have the ability to look at something and navigate through it and say, this is good, wrong, this is right, this is, and they're just not seasoned enough, it, could, it just can destroy their entire lives. It's a form of trauma that over time we're going to see in what we call the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. We use that to diagnose psychiatric issues. We're going to see trauma related more 
from social media and imagery over time. And you continue to have those conversations. And you may not see the results in a week or two weeks, but what we're talking about is over time, that you continue to invoke this character in them. You continue to do that. Over time, they will look back and be like, when I, when, you know, this is what happens with me, when patients come to me over time and they're in their 30s, 40s, and I ask them about, how was mom? How was dad? Mom, she really kind of just let us do whatever we wanted to do. Dad was always there. He was firm. He was, you know, it was tough in the beginning, but they will see that over time. And that's your role is to, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I'm going to be the dad when my kids are away in college that unexpectedly just shows up, I'm, you know, and they may hate it, but I'm going to be there until the end when these are young men that can lead their families and I'm not going to give up. That's a great question. So the question is, when you're discipling somebody with PTSD um, and past traumas are coming up, how do you know when you're kind of entering a range that may maybe invoke more trauma or bring up things that are difficult for them to deal with, maybe kind of past your skill set level? Um, the same question came up yesterday. So what I always recommend is this. Your role as a discipler, if somebody has significant PTSD, is to deal with the present and what's conscious to them. So if they're talking about their past to you, you are an incredible listener. Let them talk. Because it's natural and normal that from an unconscious to a conscious perspective, their brain is bringing it to the forefront and trying to navigate through it. And that's healthy, natural, and normal. If they do that and it kind of leads them into maybe some suicidal thinking or, you know, they're decompensating in front of you where they're getting very anxious or whatever, then you could pray with them. And if that doesn't help, then you may need to take them to a professional or an emergency room. I would never, ever... And I know a lot of people have done this, maybe even in this room, start asking questions about their past, about does this connect with your past at all? Did anything happen when you were younger? Any sexual trauma? Anything? Because they, have, they may have repressed or suppressed things that they don't even remember. And all of a sudden it's like, whoo, or that night they may go home and have a dream and it's like right there, their father molesting them. And how are you going to deal with that? How, what if they impulsively do something in the middle of the night? Maybe some impulsive behaviors or certain things, cutting, that you may not even know that they're, they're doing yet. So I would always kind of on the surface be with them, support them. You are a rock. You will never give up on them. If they choose to tell you something, that's fine, but that is it, unless you have specialized training. Never, never ask and go deeper. I would not. I would not. And I would, the, way I, the way I would frame it, framing is something we, we talk about in psychiatry and psychology. When you sit with somebody, you kind of frame the time you're going to spend with them so it kind of dictates the flow. You would just tell them that. Like, I just want you to know that I'm here for you to support you. And anything you want to talk about, if you bring it up, that's fine. I'm not going to go to your past. I'm not going to go deeper. I just want to be here to support you. Great question. Yes, sir. I would build on that. Yeah, when, when you know, if he's, ha if he's nervous and he's anxious and he's there and he's able to communicate with you that you could just talk to him like, you know, what are you feeling right now? You know, there's something called alexithymia, which is the inability to label feeling and emotion with words. So when, if they, people cannot do that, when they feel something raw, they just react. But the ability to diffuse from feelings and emotions is that you've labeled your feelings. That's, that, that technique I was showing you, I was putting words to what I was feeling because I want to be, I want my mind to, to know that this is a feeling. 
It is not a truth. When you can't label emotions in real time, you just react. Okay? And the more you do that with the emotions and feelings that are unique to you and the story of your life and the story of your grandson's life, the better you are at doing that. So a, a basic technique would be like, um, so I notice you're, you're, you're biting your, finger, your nails right now and you're doing that. What are you feeling? You know? And they may say, mad, scared, fearful. And you just ask them to put even any other words that you can put on that and label these feelings and emotions, and you're actually helping them defuse, and you'll see that they'll just stop. It's not trying to make them feel better, but it's trying to help them learn to navigate through. Right, absolutely. And that's great too. And as you continue to have that dialogue and that instruction, those things will register more and more to him. Great question, yes sir. The, right, so, the, my, so this essentially, um, my first, this is my first book I've ever written. It's all on addiction. There's a ton of anxiety in, within the book, in the chapters. I, I still recommend reading because a lot of what I shared today um, is in that book as a foundation. Um, the next book will be the anxiety book. So I'm working on that right now. Um, and so if you download that book, you automatically get the link to get the other book too. Um, and the books are written, are going to be written for ministry staff and also for just you know, regular Christians who want help. Um, and so, and they're always going to be free. I'm never going to charge for anything I write so that just for you, send it to whoever you can. If it ever helps, that's awesome. Okay. It can be both. It can be from a developmental issue. Um, it could be, you know, something that's so deep and repressed um, that you just may not know yet. Um, and it can also be neurological as well. Um, so I, I would say, you know, for stuttering, really a neuropsychiatrist um, who could do both and a really good therapist who over time can take you through. I, have a, I had a patient that when I was in uh, Syracuse, um, she stuttered. And um, she came to me for therapy, and we, you know, we just went through her life. You know, it wasn't like we were targeting the stuttering, but we were going to kind of go through her life and see if in her development anything happened. Essentially what happened was when she was a very young girl and she repressed this memory, it was like completely forgotten, okay? After about a year and a half of therapy, she um, came to me and she said she had this dream that she was at a dinner table with her mom and dad, and um, she was eating like a carrot. And as she was eating the carrot, she was like looking at her parents and the carrot got stuck. And um, in the dream, all she remembers is like her mom screaming and like looking and calling for her father to react. And, and then like this image of her father like above her, like trying to pull this out of her mouth and just like constantly trying to do this, pull it out. Um, and she survived. And it was the dream. So she comes back to therapy and she's like, I had this dream and I, I just can't. And I'm like, have you talked to your parents or I mean, you know, is, did this really happen? And she talked to her mother and it, it actually did happen when she she was a child. Her stuttering didn't go away right away, but over time, as we continued to bring it more into conscious, she stopped stuttering. Right, right. So um, essentially my, my suggestion is acceptance and commitment therapy is that um, when they do react to that, you know, if this is your child, just you just have a conversation and you strike the iron while it's cold, meaning at the moment when they are reacting, you know, there may be some discipline that needs to take place. There may be certain th timeout just to kind of, timeout guys, by the way, is not punitive. It's de-escalation. It's like, do you think you need some time to kind of just relax a little bit? It's not like, you're bad, go to timeout. 
That's not timeout. Timeout is like, do you need to calm down a little bit? Maybe take some time and we'll, you know, do this, whatever. So maybe some timeout. Um, and, and then after the iron is cooled down, you strike the iron while it's cold later that evening. And you're like, so you remember what happened earlier today? What were you feeling? Like what happened at that moment? You know, and then you slowly kind of did something happen in the past, and they're little, so there's not like 30 years of time, right? Um, and did something happen, or um, you know? And one of the things I want to tell you guys, just as maybe as young parents or a parent, you know, regular parents, is that don't ever be afraid to ask your children if there's something weird going on at school, some form of abuse, somebody touching them inappropriately. When kids are depressed and we'll talk about this in the next talk, when kids are depressed or anxious, they don't come to you and say, I'm depressed, and they don't come to you and say, I'm anxious, they act out. It's behavior that's a little off. So whenever I see something with my kids, I always, I'll talk to them later on, like, how are things at school? You know, like, how your teachers, whatever. Has anybody ever touched you that's, like, weird? It's just weird, like you're walking by and right there. Or Has anybody ever done anything? No, Dad, no. You know that if anything like that, anything weird, guys, you can always come to Daddy. Don't ever be afraid. We'll just talk about it, you know, and, and that's the culture. So as a parent, I do that with them all the time to make connections too. Guys, don't be deceived. I mean, they're, the people that, that molest and, and do things to our children, they are actually people like you look at them and you're like, I want that person working with my child. It's just their personalities over time have morphed into that in order to feel that, feed that uh, need for them. That's another talk. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, yes. So, yes. Yeah, so, transcranial magnetic stimulation, um, it's a paradigm shift in psychiatric treatment. Essentially, you know, 30 years ago, guys, people, you know, they could be in their houses and their face droops and they're having a stroke and they would walk into an emergency room and there was no MRI or CT. And so, a neurologist would be tapping their reflexes and trying to find the area in their brain so they can go into neurosurgery and clear out the bleeding, right? MRIs come into play now and you just go into an ER, you take an image and boom, you're going to neurosurgery. So what we've been using now, though, is MRI technology to find those same areas in the brain to treat depression and anxiety. Also, we're using it for autism, Parkinson's disease, and addiction. We know the areas, we map the area of the brain, and we, we create an electric field around what's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for depression and anxiety, and that electric field brings up serotonin, dopamine, um, norepinephrine, and these are the chemicals we take with pills to kind of bring up those things as well. The problem with pills is that it goes through your, you know, through your GI tract, hits all the receptors in your gut, makes you nauseous, you gain weight, your sex drive goes down, finally gets to your liver, and the liver has to activate the pill. You may not even have the enzymes to activate that pill. So you may be taking Prozac and you're like, I'm at the highest dose, it's not working. Then you go to another pill and another pill and you may genetically just not have those enzymes. And we do genetic testing for the liver for that. But with TMS, we don't do any of that. We go right, because after it's activated in the liver, it goes to the heart and then goes to the brain. With TMS, we go right to the brain and we bypass all this. So the efficacy is about 80%, pills are 20%. So it's a paradigm shift in, in, in psychiatry, and I, I started two practices in Jacksonville to do it. Yes, sir. Okay, so that guy, um, his name was Dr. Quinto. He and I became very, very good friends over time. And it was the, my, the lens that I looked at Dr. Quinto through. It wasn't necessarily Dr. Quinto, okay? Dr. Quinto is another person in my life from my past that I projected a lot of stuff onto, 
Okay, And over time, I was able to confront Dr. Quinto with certain ways that he actually treated other residents and talked to him after me dealing with kind of the issues that I had to deal with to be comfortable with him. Okay, And it allowed for me to not only navigate through my fear, but also help this individual. And we are still close friends today. His only issue with me is that I didn't become a surgeon and I became a psychiatrist. And he'll still say that till today. Yeah, uh, definitely come to the, my parenting talk. Okay, um, But... Uh, understand that um, a part of, there, there's two things that could be happening there, okay? Um, children learn, they are incredible at learning the behavior of parents. Uh, and they're incredible at matching words and reactions to navigate their parents. It's called projective identification. Basically, they can react in a certain way to take ownership of you and make you react back in a way that helps, that kind of, right, okay. And, and adults do that all the time, and it's, it's actually, it's called a personality disorder defense. But little children are little, and they do it. What I would do is when he says that after, like, with my sons, when I disciplined them, you know, and, and I did, I spanked them, right? I don't anymore. Um, but the spanking was just very clear. It was like, son, um, you know, we have a certain set of rules in our home. And there are a certain set of things that we spank for. And there are certain, and other things that we don't. But you made the decision to do this, and we have to move forward with it. After we spank, I love them. I talk to them. How are they feeling? What are they? My, one of my sons said the same thing, very similar to that. Um, and I would just talk to him about that. Why do you feel that? You, know, you, made, you made a mistake, and you made a bad decision. There was a consequence to it. But the only reason why I'm doing this with you is because I think you're the most incredible kid. You know, my son, one of my sons plays junior golf, the Rafa, um, and he's actually really, really good. Um, and I'm his caddy, right? And so we're talking about dealing with all kinds of emotions and feelings and things. And um, really what I've learned is that, like, and he told me, he said to me, it was similar to what the gentleman said about his son. He said to me, um, when I'm ne like, when I, when I get upset or when I go like, if he misses a putt, <sighs> He's like, Daddy, when you do that, it makes me feel like you don't believe in me. Seven years old, seven, eight years old. Or it makes you feel like I'm useless. That was the word he used. I was like, how could he even think that right now? And I'm like, I'm so disconnected. I'm like, son, I'm like, I think you're the most incredible thing there is. I mean, like the only reason why I feel that for you is because I want you to have so much victory. But I'm learning, son. I'm learning that it's going to take time. You know, and so we're learning together, right? So the, two weeks ago, we had the bet, one of his best rounds ever. And I was like, like, if he putted and missed, I was like, I didn't do anything. I was just like, if he did, I was like, you're awesome. You know, like, that was incredible. Well, bud, we'll do it on the next hole. There were parents coming up to me that were like, I, you're incredible. You're an incredible dad. I'm like, I'm like feeling so much right now. I can't even tell you. And because of that, Right, because of this guy that he looks at as a superhero, believes in him, it's everything he needs. And that's the parenting role. We have to, it's just like God. He looks down at us like, you are amazing. Our children have to see that with the discipline, with everything that comes with it, that we look at them as like, they are incredible. And that's, and that's really it. So when you discipline him and, and if he comes back at you with that and if he, it makes you feel like, man, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to spank. Don't let those emotions get in the way. Just continue what you do because you love them. And when it's time to, you don't have to do that anymore, then you move on to other types of discipline. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. The message you just heard was from Marcus D. Carvalho's track called Untangling Addiction. 
Stronger Through Jesus Style Discipleship. Make sure to go online and download his free ebook called Untangling Addiction. You can find it at discipleship.org slash addiction. That's discipleship.org slash addiction. In addition to this podcast and that resource, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker. Thank you.